Well, guys, I, I don't have much time left, um, so I'll finish on one last one, which is uh, I know, Yaya, you've talked about obsessively watching movies as opposed to being like a huge, wide-ranging cinephile. You obsessively watch Training Day. Jake, yeah. you might be able to see behind me. I obsessively watch Heat and Zodiac. I'm currently finishing the Zodiac Chronicle podcast. I wonder, Jake, what are your movies that you obsessively watch? Hmm. I know this is sort of, I mean, it's very different, but... I'm a huge Pedro Almodovar movie uh, fan, and I yes. watch, you know, All About My Mother, Under Her Skin is incredible. But then I go all the way over to like Obsessive. I could watch Jerry Maguire like hundreds and hundreds of times, yeah. which is in a whole other space. I feel the same way about Heat, you know, that, that you, you were talking about Heat. Well, Yaya's yeah, others I mean, are Amadeus, Tropic Thunder. Did I get that right, Yaya? You are getting that right, because I've heard him. Yeah. I think you're right yeah. about that. Amadeus is a really good one. I have That's a great that. one. I was like, good, this, good. Mo- this, this movie feels like Training Day, Tropic Thunder, and Amadeus. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you guys did I a feel like job I'm there. more of the Tropic Thunder side of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece that recently celebrated its 15th anniversary Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, the film of course stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I am your host, Blake Howard, and this is the 24th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, the finale, Capricorn Part 2. Two of the stars of Michael Bay's Ambulance provided our introduction, Emmy Award-winning star of Watchmen, Candyman, and Matrix Resurrections, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, and the incredible Academy Award nominee and star of movies like Brokeback Mountain, Nightcrawler, Prisoners, Donnie Darko, Jarhead, and of course, Zodiac. That's right. Jake Gyllenhaal. Now, joining me to go door-to-door one last time are the man whose life and works inspired this masterpiece, Robert Graysmith. Writer and producer of The Post, Longshot, The Girl from Plainville, and one of the writers behind the second season of David Fincher's Mindhunter, Liz Hanna. Film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope and author of fantastic movie books, one of which is David Fincher's Mind Games, Adam Naiman senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone, and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear, award-winning author, film critic, and host of the terrific and insightful Watch With Jen podcast, my friend, Jen Johans, senior editor of movies at Entertainment Weekly, a Zodiac true believer, Josh Rothkopf, the best screening moderator in LA and probably the greater US, Jim Hemphill, writer and film critic at the Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson, senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields, contributor for Film School Rejects and Stacker, movies intern at Paste, Rihanna Ziegler, writer and book critic, Bill Ryan, and for the first time, appropriately in the final episode, editor and staff writer at Brightwall Darkroom, and the host of One Heat Minute Productions' own Increment Vice, my friend, 
Travis Woods. Well, I told you, I was like, I want this scene. This is the only scene I'll do. This is the one, this is the one that that, that gets me. And this is the only one I'm going to talk about, even though I ended up talking about like every, the whole I fuck. Mean, I, th- I ended up talking uh, to the link in the movie about the movie, <laughs> uh, which is thematically appropriate in and of itself. Uh, but no, yeah, this is, I'm happy to come in at the end because there's no scene I would rather talk about. No one I'd rather talk, talk uh, about it with uh, than you, sir. And, uh, and if uh, Gray Smith, you know, counters anything that i've said today also know that i'm right (laughs) every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme an all-night cafe is what we set our scene a four-marker table is the canvas of graysmith's assembly of the zodiac myth this scene is the film's evocation of some semblance of certainty followed by the yawning unknowable perfect endings laced with existential dissatisfaction Diner conversations that are somehow the most memorable distillations of character, actor, and story. Having an extended and raw dream-sharing session with Travis Woods as the centerpiece of this episode. Yeah. I don't even need to say it. This week's theme almost chose itself. Here's Travis Woods on Zodiac. In talking about Zodiac, the film, and in talking about Zodiac, the killer, there's a line that strikes me from the film, and I'm sure I'm not the only person, but it's a line that strikes me, it haunts me, kind of chases after me, depresses me, um, and that is... Robert, it was just the date that didn't end. Said by Chloe Sevigny to Jake Gyllenhaal when she's parting ways with him. And for her, it's it's more of a kiss off, you know, a gentle kiss off, but a kiss off nonetheless. But within the broader context of Zodiac, it was just the date that didn't end. It's haunting to me because this is a movie. This is a story about dates that don't end. July 4th, 1969, August 11th, 1969. These dates that these characters become trapped in, like Amber, these dates that do not end, they hold us in their sway. And isn't that kind of what life itself is like? If I can get kind of pretentious for a moment, (laughs) which I'm sure surprises no one who uh, is familiar with the sound of my voice, but isn't that what life is? Isn't life just a date that doesn't end? until it does. Mm. And it's this kind of expanse of moments that, that feel like they maybe mean something, but they don't ultimately seem to stack up to anything. It's a date that doesn't end. And that line from this film, I find to be the most haunting expression about so much of what the Zodiac case, the Zodiac story, the Zodiac film, the Zodiac killer is all about. And it makes me think of another line and like all, like all hopefully good writers, I think we should start every piece off with quoting somebody else because it makes you sound smart. 
And right underneath, it was just the date that didn't end, the line that just haunts me from David Fincher's serial killer oeuvre is what Somerset says to Mills in Seven when he's trying to explain ultimately what their job as murder police is really about. Why don't you tell me what the hell it is you think we're doing? Picking up the pieces. We're collecting all the evidence, taking all the pictures and samples, writing everything down, noting the time things happen. That's all? That's all. Putting everything in the neat little piles and filing it away. On the off chance it will ever be needed in the courtroom. Picking up diamonds on a deserted island, saving them. In case we get rescued. Bullshit. Even the most promising clues usually only lead to others. So many corpses roll away unrevenged. And that to me is scarier than Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. <laughs> yeah. This idea that there is no meaning, there is no narrative, there is no story. It's just a vast expanse of darkness out there. And that gets me thinking, that gets my motor going when <laughs> I approach a film like Zodiac. And it gets me start starting to ask myself questions. Why do we do this? Like you and I, me and you, <laughs> sitting across from one another, uh, you know, why, why do we do this? Why do we obsess? You know, why do we obsess over men sitting across from the table at each other obsessing? Whether it's uh, Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley in Heat, whether it's Bigfoot Bjornsson and Doc Sportello in Inherent Vice, whether it is Robert Graysmith and uh, Inspector Toshi sitting across from each other at a diner, always these diners, obsessing. Why do we do this as people? Why do we do it as two guys, you and me? Why do we do it as people? Why do we obsess and that? And I think about it, and I think about it in the context of those two lines from the movie. It was just the date that didn't end in Somerset's, you know, sad soliloquy of searching for diamonds on a desert island. It's because it provides us, lost as we are in this big empty of existence, it provides us with narrative. And I think that is something that everyone knowingly or unknowingly in existence seeks, whether it's in religion, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in whatever, we seek narrative. Robert Graysmith seeks narrative in the film. More than maybe anyone else to a deeper, greater extreme than any other character in this tale, both in its fictional version and its real version, Zodiac seeks a narrative, perhaps to a, not perhaps to a greater extreme than anyone else does. And they do that, all of these characters, all of us, all of these podcasters, all of these filmmakers, <laughs> we all do it because it allows us to be writers. It allows us to control. It allows us to assemble. It allows us to organize life. 
And I think ultimately there's a reason, there's many reasons why this is a perfect movie. There's many reasons why it's a five-star crime film. There's many, many reasons why it's David Fincher's masterpiece. In a filmography that's got quite a few gems, there's a reason why this is the most perfect of them. And it's because it is the most human of all of his tales. It is the most philosophically in tune with what I think his interests are. I don't think that he's an auteur, whatever the fuck that word means. <laughs> I think he is an aestheticist in that he has an aesthetic that he applies to all of the stories he approaches. And sometimes that aesthetic application does not work as well as others. Fincher has this aesthetic obsession with the steady to overwhelming accretion of information and what we do with that with that flow and whether we let it control us or whether we wrestle with it and try to control it and that's what happens in zodiac and that's why i think it's his most perfect film because he's made some some really great ones but nowhere else does the venn diagram of Fincher aesthetic obsession and actual plot of the film so cleanly overlap and does so telling a story which ultimately I think is his most resonant and human because it speaks to that thing inside of us that gnaws at each of us, which is how do I fucking make sense of this story? This, mm. this date that does not end that I wake up to every goddamn day. And I think that that is such a hook, that is such a narrative engine that is inescapable in its fascination and its implications. There's no way you can't not want to watch this over and over <laughs> and over again, because that's part of the point. The repetition of it, the patterns of it, the obsession with it, movie and subject are the same thing in, in this case. And that is... That is endlessly fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, someone uh, someone should do a podcast about it. You know, much like uh, my favorite my favorite joke in the whole movie is uh, when Grace Smith tells Avery, was thinking, someone should write a book. And before he even says what about it, I love that Avery goes, someone should write a book. Sure. That's for fucking sure. That's for fucking sure. But yeah, someone should do a podcast about this movie sometime. Blake, what do you think? Now, let's get to the scene. We've seen a frantic Robert Graysmith turn up to Dave Toskey's house in the middle of the night, waking Mrs. Toskey, having Dave threaten his life. That kind of primal, revelatory scream, it's Arthur Lee Allen, is like a code. He's allowed into the Toskey home. He's dried off. And he wants to hold court. But in the kitchen of the Toski home is not the appropriate place. Mrs. Toski and two sleeping girls are upstairs. So they head to the battleground of a formica table. Yes, you have Sherwood Morrow in writing saying, I'm sorry, this just won't work, but you also have Terry Pasco. His protege. Yeah, fine, it's his protege, but he's a handwriting expert nonetheless, and he's saying, do not disqualify the suspect on the basis of handwriting, so the two cancel each other out. No, they don't. It was Sherwood's case. 
He was the head of question documents. If it went to trial, all the defense would have to do is call Sherwood to the stand. And there was no way of getting Allen into court in the first place because there was no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? This major expository dump could totally cripple the film. Instead, this imperceptible, energetic, and kinetic editing style is constantly adjusting the actors, the characters, their gestures, the angles. Every single moment is trying to mirror the mounting energy of this case pouring out. You interviewed him at the refinery on August 4th. So he's cleaning out his trailer. He's moving into a different county 48 hours after you interviewed him. Okay. Okay. Look at this stuff side by side. Okay. Um, Arthur Lee Allen and, and the Zodiac, their timelines. When was the first murder in Vallejo? Christmas 1968. Eight months before that, Allen is fired for molesting his students and his family discovers that he's a pedophile. Now, when do the letters begin? July 69. After the murder of Darlene Farron. And they continue until you go to see him at work. Now, after that, do any of the letters contain swatches of Paul Stein's shirt? No, because he dumped him, because he got scared, because he knew that you were onto him. So when's the next letter from Zodiac? Not until January of 1974. He is silent for three years. Then in 74, he feels comfortable again because everybody's moved off Allen as a suspect. And what do we get? Three new letters from Zodiac in January, May, and July in 74. But then the letters stop. What happens to Allen? He's arrested. January 1975, they send him to a Tascadero. We don't get another letter from Zodiac the entire time he's there. When is he released? August 77. Alan gets out, he types you an apology, and then what? We get our first new Zodiac letter in four years. So I've been thinking about that so much about like jurisdiction matters. And one of the things I've perhaps been thinking about it, and look, let's get pretentious because I'm talking to you. And um, mm-hmm. is I've been thinking about like my creative jurisdiction and I feel very much like when you see like the way that people engage with culture and art and stories making sense of the world for us. I've been reflecting on my jurisdiction of these texts, of these obsessive things uh, and, and these, these kinds of masterpieces and, and trying, trying to engage with and also then drastically avoid um, self-reflection about why these texts resonate with me so but I, I reflect so much on jurisdiction matters for that very reason of like if 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 only to collect diamonds on a beach in the hope that we're rescued um, you know right back when I recorded the first episodes of One Heat Minute and right when the shows that get chosen for these projects are in the amorphous bit I'm all I'm never expecting I'm never expecting and I'm always so pleasantly surprised but I'm never expecting that it's going to it's going to satisfy anyone except for me collecting the diamonds on the beach you know like it's never going to uh, that that's my way of I don't know being alive in this world you know <laughs> well like it's amazing that you say that that idea that you're collecting these diamonds on a deserted island hoping someday that you'll be rescued because I think ultimately that is the point of the film and I think it's the point of writing and I think it's the point of narrative which is you're not only trying to make sense of something for yourself 
it's that you are hoping that one day when you desperately covered in sweat and rain wake an inspector up in the middle of the night you're going to be able to tell him a story that is so compelling he will not be able to see it as anything but undeniably true and you will thus have been validated in your attempt at cohering this narrative together that's the movie whether it's a man sending codes and letters to the storytellers at the San Francisco Chronicle and was a chronicle but a story being told whether it's a man sending letters of his deeds saying does this make sense to you guys <laughs> more or less does this make sense to you whether it's a man compiling a book about the events hoping someone else will see it go i see what you're i see what's driving you i see it too so what or whether it's perhaps most poignantly the man who's supposed to be the expert in this subject sitting across from you at a diner five in the morning shaking his head going jesus christ you did it <laughs> finish the book that is so much i think what fuels a great deal of that obsession okay so i can't have known darlene farron right yes because of the phone calls on the night of her murder because of the vallejo file we know that Darlene knew a man named Lee? Yes. So all coincidence aside, Robert, how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen, lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door, that is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. Here's Jan Johans and Anna Swanson on those three infamous words, I've walked it. I really respond to the scenes with Graysmith and Toski, especially when they're, it's funny, they're always at diners, but they're at diners kind of bonding and, um, you know, throwing out ideas and like, oh, you thought of that. It's, it's a great yin and yang. And it kind of reminds me of, as a film geek, like one of my favorite things to do is, you know, after you go to a really good movie, you go talk about it usually at a diner or something yes. and so and then it's like Blake says something brilliant kind of like our <laughs> pandemic film club and you're like capitalizing Ooh, that's good what about this and then you know you got Jordan just slicing <laughs> it all down to like a perfect question and was like, was this oh. movie really good after yeah. all <laughs> was, it, was it pretty good no I'm just kidding <laughs> I, we love him uh. but yes um you know, just the nice exchange of ideas and the passion, the obsession, the enthusiasm that they have, like, ooh, we're getting to the bottom of it. And I think film geeks can totally relate, especially that final sequence in yeah. the diner where it's Special. like 50 yards, you know, I've walked, walked it. Yeah, and you could just see his excitement when he's like, is it really that close? Like, I have walked it. And you're like, whoa, yeah. 
I I think I just I can't get that line um, where Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith says I've walked it out of my head. It's so good. It's just so good. The line delivery from Gyllenhaal is fantastic, but just like the desperation of that, the commitment of it, this sort of thing of like, you know, he's sitting opposite Toski, who's saying like, yes, you have X, Y, Z, like 15 points of evidence here, but it's all circumstantial. And what can you do with that? Right? Like owning a watch isn't a crime. (laughs) Um, All of these things like, and it's just that sort of, it's that desperation to take something that you believe and to make it real and to not miss any of the steps quite literally to accomplish that um and i was even watching it back i i and i think this kind of ties in with how the film undercuts some of the glamour of it is i was thinking about it and i was thinking about like you know darlene farron as kind of the first victim we see or like one of the first two victims that we see in the film right like it opens in july it doesn't open with the killings that happened before that and re-watching the opening scene i was thinking about how the film kind of and obviously this is based on fact of like the layout of the car right like we assume darlene's sitting in the driver's seat she's driving um but even just the way that you know the guy gets in the car and he says well i want to drive and she's like no this is my car and (laughs) you know she kind of says like well i want to go here let's do that like she has a little like even in this one scene like she's a character with like a degree of the autonomy and control even when she sort of she knows who's in that car or at least she acts like she does right she knows that it's not her husband she knows to stay in the car to not go and provoke him and you know i was thinking about as we sort of learn the details of as the film supposes it the zodiac killer being arthur lee allen that you know like graysmith says he lived 50 yards away from where she worked at the vallejo house pancakes and I, I think something that I was really thinking about on this watch was just the fact of like Darlene was like a woman who you can kind of imagine was just humoring this weird guy who would come into where she worked. Yeah. And I think just the dynamic of that where it's like she's she's a waitress. She, you know, if some guy is creeping her out, she's going to humor him. She's going to be polite. She's going to let that dude who's probably crossing some boundaries do that because she doesn't want to get fired. And just I think the circumstances of that um, was really something that I was thinking about on this watch that I haven't thought about before. And, you know, it's so... It, it's it's a small component that's not like explicitly brought out, but I think it's there. And I think it, it just, I don't know. I just really found that it spoke to something that I was like, oh yeah, like that's that's how, that's how women are murdered. Not because it's like a John Doe character who is this criminal mastermind and genius who's, you know, clever and has this plan. It's some guy at the diner where you work being a little overly polite and creepy or being creepy and you're being a little bit polite and humoring them I've walked it Jesus Christ so the prints the handwriting I'm not asking you as a cop but I am a cop. 
I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, Dirty Harry. Finish the book. Thank you. Thank you for breakfast. Here's Liz Hanna on Mark Ruffalo's inimitable swagger. Yeah, I mean, I think Mark Ruffalo in particular is somebody who stands out for me in this movie. Like, I think the swagger he has at the start of the film to, you know, some of that still being at the end because he has to go on, he has to be a cop, that's who he is. But seeing, you know, when he slides, the, when he pays for the lunch or whatever with J- Jake Gyllenhaal in the diner after Jake Gyllenhaal like lays out exactly how it, it, it happened and how he knows who did it is you can almost see like a physical relief that he's just like, okay, I was right. And I may never be able to prove this. I may never be able to figure like really figure this out, but it's over for me now. And there's closure to it. And that felt, and it really is like a physicality of his his posture changes in that part of the movie that it's really impressive. Yeah, he whips on that coat as he walks out oh, the door. So and it's just... So much swagger. Oh. His hair is fantastic. <laughs> Love it. And there's like the perfect gray. It's wonderful. Here's Anna Swanson and Travis Woods trying to get to the bottom of why we are so obsessed with serial killers. As much as I like stuff like Seven, like the, the sort of... The, the glamour of it, the thrill of the killer being a genius, it, it wears thin yes. after a while. And I think that that's what kind of can tire me out with true crime, serial killer fiction. Um, yeah, I don't I don't think it's it's the gore or the indulgence. I think it's like, do you want me to believe this guy is a genius? You, you, you have these moments of self-reflection uh, and you might be the only podcaster capable of that, Blake, so be proud of yourself. <laughs> um, it's not something that comes easy to the rest of us. Uh, but you were having a moment where you were like even wondering, why am I why am I thinking about this shit? You know, why this? You know? And in thinking about this podcast and thinking about the uh, this idea that this film really, more than anything else, it's about being a writer in the most ontological sense in that a writer is someone who makes sense of things that don't make sense that that provides a narrative and an existence in which there isn't one or doesn't appear to be one from our vantage i also started to think about you know why why the fuck do we care about serial killers these pathetic yeah pieces of shit that are only rivaled in how pathetic they are by how monstrous they are. Like, why? Why is this entertainment? And I, and why do some of our greatest forms of entertainment, some of our worst too, but some of our greatest forms of entertainment, like Zodiac, why do they cohere? Why do they, why do their their themes so nimbly honeycomb around a subject as horrifying? And you know, I was thinking about it, and I think that serial killers hold us wrapped in attention with their true crime paperbacks 
and their murder podcasts and in the living room dark flicker glow of whatever Netflix long form limited docu-series is out this month. Uh, they Serial killers hold our attention for two reasons. The first being that these killers by their, by their definition, serial killers with their patterns and the repetitions and their bequeathing of significance to specific acts and items and people, they craft consequential narratives out of the very real, but to us inexplicable pieces of our real lives. The random errata that makes so little sense or meaning to us they bequeath with an almost holy significance. And second, they craft these dark narratives around what is the central existential concern to each of our lives, which is death. Mm. Death is what all stories require, an ending. Ending is narrative. Serial murders in their compulsive, disgusting narcissistic madness they craft a narrative in which death this thing that we all fear is a necessity they base their narrative around the final and i think to us fascinating social taboo the last one in our crumbling rome and that's murder right yeah and it is murder is the subject of their narrative it is the instrument of their narrative it is the point of their narrative and it is in death the end of our narrative in their story should they catch one of us this is their obsession and that is why they become ours as well because they traffic so very literally even more than writers who just compile it on the page these are people out there imposing a narrative on the universe even if it's insane to us they i think that there is a sick fascination with these evil sons of bitches who impose their own prescribed meaning onto the madness even if their meaning itself is madness which it is uh their obsession that becomes ours as well that's why I think their tales haunt us because they are in a weird way. They're like, they're us loosed of any sanity. They're us. They're the mirror of us. They are this kind of reflection of these impulses, not impulses to murder, but impulses to literally confront the unconfrontable death to craft narrative out of all of this senselessness. And I know this sounds pretentious, but I think Zodiac film killer story reflects our need for narrative and yet paradoxically in real life and in the film he forever escapes us denying us that ending that satisfies and defines narrative and i think that that is yet another reason why this film there's such a lingering fascination with it and the case is because it both teases us seduces us with its discerning of narrative within the patterns and the codes and then right at the last second refuses to give us that ending that we need the death of the story that we need so that we can move on it becomes a date that does not end 
And I think that's why we can't let it go. Because even in that, being a date that it that doesn't end, it is so much more honestly reflective of what life feels like. It both captures what haunts us and then becomes what haunts us. And because I think we're all masochistic, <laughs> uh, masochistic little little viewers that, that that we hang on to that, or at least those of us who love the movie, obviously, you know, there are obviously some that hate it for those very reasons. The, the reason there is no resolution. Um, although I I would argue that when we get to it eight hours from now in our conversation that um <laughs> the scene that we're talking about with robert and dave at the table is at least the moral climax of the film if i don't know if there's a plot climax but i think it's at least the moral climax of the film but uh, yeah there's a there's a human there's a fundamental human urge to make the disparate pieces these irresolute incohate things ultimately cohere that it's the imposition of pattern it's why serial killers kill it's why uh puzzle puzzle crackers solve riddles it's why detectives solve mysteries it's why podcasters host their shows <laughs> it's why it's why storytellers tell stories and filmmakers make films it's why david fincher made zodiac it is the imposition of narrative cohesion on an existence that seems to defy it and that is why this is the nay plus ultra of serial killer movies. <laughs> and that is also why I think serial killer movies hold such sway with us. They force us to confront the thing we don't want to confront, which is death. And they they introduce us to real, actual monsters who use the crafting of narrative to define themselves and throw the rest of us into that blackness that we don't want to think about to do so. How can you not think about that all the time? Like, how can you not <laughs> obsess about that? Right? How can you not want more and more stories, as cliched as they might be, of the dogged detective and the unstoppable killer? Because there is something, there's something inherent there that touches on all these things that I keep saying obsess us. Uh, because I do think as humans, we are obsessive creatures. We obsess over, and we're narcissistic, so we obsess over that which we feel will comfort us. And I think what comforts us is narrative. And I think what comforts us is composing our a narrative and looking across the table at someone else and seeing recognition in their eyes. Isn't that what happens here? Isn't that what happens in this in this moral climax, as James Elroy calls it in the film, where these two men look at each other and then one of them says, Jesus Christ. And he gets it. <laughs> and he gets it. And he understands. And he understands the story being told and he can believe it because it makes sense. Shit, man, there's, that's, a, that's a lot. That's, that's, that's a lot of heavy <laughs> stuff there. It's a lot more than just cop versus serial killer, you know? And uh, I also like that uh, we're talking about all these thematic ideas and how this thing is resonant with that thing. And, and I think I, I have thematically, in a way, become one with uh, the Zodiac podcast here because <laughs> I am literally just endlessly shotgunning information at you in a non-stop <laughs> in a non-stop uh scattergun uh blowout uh because that's 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 what this subject does it's just <laughs> throwing stuff out that sounds uh, sounds kind of smart it sounds like maybe it makes sense well, i don't know though uh, so you know in a way i think uh, I, I don't want to toot my own horn since you have people actually involved with the film on here but i think i'm 
uh, I, I was made to guest on this show with you because <laughs> I feel like I'm becoming the movie itself, just throwing information at you. And then I'm just going to walk out of here and leave and let you try to figure it out and hope that I sound smart when you edit it all together. Tennessee and Carol. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door. That is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. Jesus Christ. So? The prince, the handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop. But I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, Harry. Finish the book. This is a case. It's, it's taken place over northern and southern California. It's involved hundreds of people. And yet Darlene Farron, who, who we meet who we meet in the very first scene that takes place on July 4th, 1969, a date that does not end for this film because this is a movie that begins and ends on uh, on the same discussion of the same date, July 4th, 1969. Does, can we not can we not admit that Darlene Farron working at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on Tennessee and <laughs> Carroll, which is just, which is less than 50 yards from Arthur Lee Allen's mother's basement on Fresno Street, where he lived at the time. That is salt and pepper on the table. That is door to door. Can you not see that with me and see that that has to mean something? And we, if we get the sense that it means something, if we can agree on that baseline, can I not get you to go one step further and see that it means that it's Arthur Lee Allen? And which leads me to my second favorite moment in the film, which is right before this, the desperation with which Grace Smith screams that outside of uh, Dave's window when he just screams, it's Arthur Lee Allen. And <laughs> I so identified with that moment as someone who is prone to obsessiveness because like, I don't you know that feeling when you're convinced of something, whether it's about life, whether it's about a person, whether that's a story you're writing, you just, it, it feels so cataclysmically right and you just want so badly someone else to look at it and go, yeah, Jesus Christ, yeah. I can't prove this, but yeah, write the book, finish the book. This is this is it. Like, I see you in this. I see me in this. I see him in this. I see all of us in this. This is this is who and what we are. You know, that's that's the thing. That's the look. What's uh, uh, Claire Duvall uh, telling him uh, when she he meets her in jail? You got the look. You got that look. You got that look. You got that you got that that, uh, that obsession that you need to know. You need to look at this story and the central piece in the story, the one thing that we can't identify, which is Zodiac. You need to be able to look at it and know. You just want to know. You just want to know. You want accolades. You don't want to. You don't want a junior G man badge. Uh, <laughs> you uh, you just want to know that you're right. You just you just, you just need to know that and. Fuck, if that's not what this film is about for all of us, I think, and whether you're a writer or not, we're all writers in a way. We're all trying to compose these elements of our story in a neat and artful way so it can make fucking sense at the end of the day, so we can sleep at night. 
you know, so that we can get up in the morning and I wonder why the hell am I doing this? Uh, we need a narrative. We need a narrative. Zodiac needs a narrative. So desperately he is willing to repetitiously kill uh, within a broader pattern. And like a writer, he does it in drafts. The, the, <laughs> look at how he kills wearing a costume one time. He only does it that one time. Uh, or the way he kills Paul Stein so, so kind of aberrantly and randomly. Uh, the way he, uh, you know, the, the first the first noted kill in Vallejo, he, he kills both of them, but then later on only kills the women. He's a writer going through drafts, trying to figure out his own patterns. Not to, and, I, and I'm not comparing anyone to, to him in a, in, a, in a positive way, obviously. He's a horrible piece of shit, or was. <laughs> But that, in a way, all of the characters in this movie are all doing the same thing, and they're all doing what we do. And the filmmakers, by making the film, are doing what we do and doing what these characters do, which is so desperately trying to just compile the pieces, these diamonds on a desert island, and arrange them just so that when you stand back, you can go, Jesus Christ, I did it. I told it the right way. I told it with the right words. It, it makes sense now. And someone else that is important to me, that matters to me, whether it's because I care about them or simply because they are an authority on this, they're gonna look at this and then they're gonna look at me and they're gonna say, Jesus Christ, finish this. And all in that moment, my purpose will have been served. And my story will mean something because my story was to tell this story and that gives me meaning and that gives my story meaning. That's what fucking Zodiac is about to me. It's about, it's about the meaning that we find in the stories that we tell with the pieces that we find and everyone finds different ones. And some people, they find a Rick and it doesn't go anywhere. And then there are other people who they find Arthur Lee Allen and they're so sure of it, they're screaming in a cop's window <laughs> in the night, will, willing to get arrested for harassment or for stalking, digging in people's trash because they're so convinced of the, the truity of this. Truity, that's not a word, but they're so convinced of the honesty of this. They're not out there killing random innocent people, hoping that a pattern will cohere. You know, they're not, uh, they're not calling themselves zodiac and what is the zodiac but an imposition of patterns upon the fucking stars themselves these <laughs> dots these dots that we connect to define ourselves by the random day we're born in the days that for us like bill armstrong standing on a street corner over a body in a cab a day that doesn't end for us our birthday the zodiac it's all the same thing and that is what is so fucking haunting <laughs> and so important. And ultimately for a director who I don't think gets this word tossed at his work a lot, so human a film. It's just, God, you know, this is a good movie, Blake. This is a pretty <laughs> good movie. Someone someone should break this sucker down, right? Yeah. This is, this I, is, this is a, like, it's... Know, talking to you about it, I think I've been inspired. Maybe it does need a show. Maybe it does. <laughs> I, it's just it the layers to this thing. It's 
much again, and, and I, I keep talking about this as a work of art in which all pieces so wildly overlap with one another thematically uh, in terms of character, in terms of plot. This is a movie that is so dense and nigh impenetrable, just like its case. Yeah. That it can almost mean anything, though, to anyone. I'm sure there are some people that look at this movie and it's, it's a cop. It's a cop and killer movie. There's some people that watch this movie and it's like, oh, it's a, it's a hangover end of the decade kind of movie. You know, starts in 69, ends, uh, you know, ends in 91 after, after the end of another decade. Uh, but I, I don't know. I think that there... This was just one of those movies where the, no pun intended, the stars align and the cosmology aligns and everything works and everything interconnects and everything whispers to everything else in this movie, like like its characters do. And every as, aspect of this movie whispers to the other part of this movie, don't you see me? And each part whispers back, Jesus Christ, you're right. Isn't it weird about how Fincher needed to get a tree re-cemented into a spot and then re-inject the grass into the exact spot for the Berryessa killing. Like, he had to do that. He had to assemble that. Isn't that kind of like a weird thing? And as you've been talking, I'm like, well, Vanderbilt was obsessed with this. And then Vanderbilt got Brad Fisher and they got the rights with Robert Graysmith. And Robert Graysmith had watched the rights lapse and people do it. And he was constantly testing these guys and then on that day standing with ken narlo out at lake berryessa ken narlo you know now what 40 years since the days that he'd done that is walking around this area and like you said the whispers the cosmology the stars aligning they're there and david fincher is not listening to ken narlo he's not listening to him talk about this scene he's listening to the traffic sounds He's listening to literally the breeze tell him whether he is in the right spot. This 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 hyperconductor of like between times where he's going to recreate this dark event on the very hallowed ground where the dark event occurred. And he's like, no, but I'm going to assemble it just right. It has to be just perfect. It has to look exactly like this. It has to have a tree exactly right there. Because if it doesn't, if these little things organized in this way don't make sense, then no one will say, Jesus Christ. No one will that's have the reaction. Exactly, that's, no one will have the exactly reaction. It. But that what's our reaction? Jesus Christ. He did that? Jesus Christ. Because the only thing you can't be in something like this is wrong. Yes. That's what's so important. You you look at this sequence with 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 Dave and Robert, and they're sitting at the table. One of the reasons it means so much to me is, you know. Robert's becoming a writer. I mean, we're all writers. Like I said, we're all we are all writers in that we are all trying to craft these narratives. And this is a nascent writer crafting his first and most important story. And he's got to get it just right. And the way he lays, and that's what that's what this scene is. It's a writer laying out the pieces, but in just such a way that no one else was able to do before him. Mm. This is his story to tell. Because even the Zodiac didn't know how to tell the story. He wrote a couple of fucking half-assed letters and, and, and murdered some innocent people and then disappeared because he couldn't put it together. Robert can put it together and he lays it out with this final push, this final telling of the story, identifying how Arthur Lee Allen was seen carrying ciphers. 
he wore military boot, wing walker boots, same size gloves and boots as the Zodiac Killer. He was obsessed with the most dangerous game like Zodiac. He wore a watch that bore the symbol, <laughs> the, the symbol and the name Zodiac. He was, uh, Arthur Lee Allen was obsessed with children the way the Zodiac was obsessed with children. Uh, both Zodiac and Arthur Lee Allen threatened to murder kids spilling off of a bus. The spelling of Christ mass, the bloody knife in his fucking car. <laughs> this is the story of a man, Robert Graysmith, watching another man try and fail to write a story, trying to draft his story. You know, the way, uh, you know, Sherwood Morrill says, you know, somewhere along the lines, we all decide how our letters are going to look, how we're going to make them look, and how we're going to tell our stories and identify ourselves, fingerprint ourselves via our handwriting. But the most disturbing thing about the Zodiac is the Zodiac doesn't do that. His K's evolve. His K's keep changing, which is, you know, the, the evolution of his K's is somewhat haunting because it's the first letter in K-I-L-L, the verb, the word, by which Zodiac defines himself second only to Zodiac itself. And you have in Zodiac a man who can't tell the story, can't even tell his own story, tries and fails, kills and fails. And then in Robert Graysmith, you have the guy who even more than the expert himself, because he's the expert, because I'm a cop, I am a cop, I can't do that. Because he is a cop and can't, you have this one guy, the one guy who was born to tell the story the right way, not the wrong way. Mm. can't leave out the ciphers you can't leave out the five minute scene on christ mass that i'm sure an executive at paramount or warner brothers would want to cut you can't leave that out you can't leave out pointing out that someone called darlene farron's family the night she was killed and pranked them meaning that whoever killed darlene farron had to know darlene farron to know to call the family to prank them and isn't it something kind of interesting that Darlene Farron knew a guy named Lee? And isn't it interesting that a man named Lee lived less than 50 yards from where she worked every day? And Robert knows that because he's walked it. They are door to door. He had to be right to tell this story. He couldn't have this story wrong and tell it or he would be just as failed and pathetic and working uh, at a hardware store as Arthur Lee Allen himself ended up. And that can't happen as long as you are right. As long as you write W-R-I-T-E, as long <laughs> as you write the R-I-G-H-T, write words. And that is what being a writer is all about having the right words, telling the story just the right way, but doing it in a way that cannot allow it to be wrong. Putting the tree at just the right spot in Lake Berryessa because that's where that fucking tree <laughs> Was. goes. And that's what obsession is. Obsession is about getting this right, telling the story the right way. Because it, A, it gives you something to do, but B, and deeper than that, in being right, in telling the right story, you are able to see and know yourself the way that Zodiac couldn't and failed to do in trying to tell his. And in telling this story, life would make sense to Robert Graysmith when he, you know, he says earlier in the film, nothing makes sense to me anymore. 
all of the sacrifices, the things he's lost, the things he's gone through will make sense if that book gets on the shelves and shakes something loose. Maybe the day that doesn't end will end and something new can come from it. And that to me, man, that's, that's, oof, that's the sweet spot. That's the good stuff. And that's, that's what makes this movie a movie that's about movies. It's a movie that's about stories. It's a movie that's about obsession, but it's a movie that's just about us. It's about life. And it's about what life feels like. It's about a day that does not end. And what do we do inside that day? And how do we make sense of that day? And most importantly, the most human possible moment that can happen between two people is sitting at a table, presenting your story and just saying, just tell me you agree. Tell me you, tell me you get it. Tell me you feel this too. And, you know, Fincher himself said that that is probably as much solace as these two men will ever have in their lives. This cop and this cartoonist is looking across each other at the table going, I believe, I have to believe this. This is undeniably true. I don't know that I can prove this in a court of law, but you finish this book, finish this story because I believe it. And that, man, that's, that's, that's Zodiac. That's, that's what this, that's what this is all about. That's what this whole thing was for. And in an interesting bit of postscript finality, isn't that what you are doing right now? <laughs> uh, if I ever get let you get a word in, isn't uh, <laughs> isn't that's what that what what's happening here is you're assembling the pieces that other people are bringing to this movie, and this the pieces of your own, and you're kind of making this podcast concrete uh, sculpture that reflects while we're all. Seeing it, I mean, obviously, I'm my point of view is the right one, uh, <laughs> but you know that the, even even the act of doing this show, it's you're giving yourself something to do. You're discussing the mysteries of existence and what haunt us. Where you're living in the day that does not end, and you're trying to find pieces of meaning in it as it applies to the film, as it applies to the story, as it applies to this case, as it applies to you, me, everybody else on the show. And the, it's, it, that is, that's, there's only one word for that. And it's, it's, it's Zodiac. It's, that's what Zodiac is. It's connecting the dots of the stars and making sense of all this shit. And, you know, that's, that's what the movie does. Life is a date that never ends. This case never ends. The film does never end really. You know, it begins and ends if it if it ever truly does on July 4th, 1969, with a man named Zodiac who is unknowable and that haunts us. But it also allows for us to project narrative upon him uh, in, in that way, this pathetic, this pathetic piece of shit who called himself Zodiac. He is existence personified in a way as he's presented in this film. He is a narrative that cannot end. He exists in these empty spaces with uh, the diamonds on the deserted island between door to door. And uh, that's where we find him. And that's where we find ourselves. And that's why this movie and this name and this case, it's why they'll keep, they're all going to keep compelling us until, you know, the day ends. Here's Robert Graysmith on the geographical proximity of Arthur Lee Allen and Darlene Farron and why it's so essential to solving mysteries. 
Well, one, I would never have awakened Dave Toski from sleeping because I knew his hours. <laughs> no, but that restaurant, the one that's really based on I me, mean, we did go there yes. and we did have that conversation. Um, I went to the, a few steps away from Allen's house. I said, what do we say, 60 feet? There's a restaurant and uh, Darlene Farron worked there. So long before the murders, he was going in there and, and uh, what would you say? He's haunting her, whatever you want to say. Mm. He's there and she quit her job and moved elsewhere and he showed up there too but the fact that it was so close to his house and all these pieces just fit yeah see i'm very big i like geographical uh, maps of, of uh, uh, you know where you figure out who lives close and usually you're going to find that they'll live in the center of these murders but they'll start where close enough that they can get home and nobody will know them which would go for like herman road and for uh, blue rock springs where literally there's a back road that takes it right to his door and where the phone booth was that he used to call the police. So I like that. But then gradually, as these guys get more confident, it moves out and out and out. And they're yes. more uh, they're, uh, confident toward. So I always like that because I really think if you made a cross circle and put the lines at the center of that cross circle, you would find, and I've done that, you would find his house. Yes. So uh, anyway, I'm just saying that geographical profiling is fantastic. And you'd be surprised. They, I always thought that Jack the Ripper could be solved. They know where every murder was. They know where their suspects live. It is going to, it'll work just like that. You'll be able to find them right at the center and in the proximity where they get bolder and the murders get closer and closer together. But I think that's a very valuable tool for solving any mystery. Here's Jim Hemphill on Finch's appeal and being able to continue to make these small, intimate, or very personal movies on such a large scale. I then talked to David Fear about the All the President's Men homage quality of Zodiac, talking to Fincher about the reception of Zodiac and how it essentially drove him to the small screen. That is one of the exciting things about Fincher. It's both, here's the thing, it's both what excites other directors about him and I think also makes them a little jealous and maybe this is why he's never won an Oscar is because there's a slight bit of jealousy because he does get to still do these movies at this scale. Like you were saying, like to do something like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and be, have like a hundred million dollars to do something yeah. that daring and that personal. And then, you know, and that he is, he, he is still getting to do these very, very well-resourced adult movies that are not, you know, not franchise movies, comic book movies, all that kind of stuff. I mean, and it is what's thrilling about him. It is what's so exciting. I mean, when I saw Gone Girl in the theater, you know, I just was like, God, I just sat back and it was just like having pure oxygen just pumped into my lungs to see a movie like that on the big screen and not be, because I feel like movies like that now, those kinds of artistic character driven pulp movies, it's now become kind of like the do the domain of like HBO or something. And HBO doesn't do them as movies. They do them as like six or eight hour limited series, which in a way, in some cases, sometimes I think that's good and sometimes it's bad. I mean, sometimes, sometimes they're taking these things that should be two or two and a half hour movies and they're stretching them out to six hours in a way that like, the, it doesn't really support that, you know? And um, yeah, there are very few series or limited series that for me, like you say, it is it is a high bar. Like you have to, if I'm going to watch a season of TV, even a short series like an HBO series, it's like you say that's giving up five or six movies, and so mm. it's got to be Succession level, which I did love. Like yes. I love Succession. You know, Succession is great. Uh, I did like 
Mayor of Easttown. Um, I, you know, I actually, I know it's very divisive. I mean, I thought The Undoing was great, but there are a lot of them that I, you know, I've now gotten to a point where, and I hate to be this way, but it's like, if you don't grab me in the first hour, if I watch the first episode and I'm not into it, I'm not going to give you the benefit of the doubt because I've gotten burned too many times. I have to, I have to ask you a question because I thought about this while I was rewatching Zodiac mm. um, for this podcast as uh, as a huge fan of all the president's men yes how uh, how do you feel about the way that zodiac channels that movie without necessarily being a pastiche or a carbon copy I, how, how do you feel that it pays homage to it how do you feel about that homage i think i think the homage is is just like unre- like unrelenting pursuit i think that that's what where the parts of all the president's men that have now so deeply resonated with me after last year are like going into a McDonald's and watching how many drinks Carl Bernstein has in front of him and how many drinks Bob Woodward has in front of him and going like, these guys are just, this is their first meal today. And yeah. they're, and, and I think that that's what all the president's men does. And even James Vanderbilt put it so beautifully, which is like, he, he's like, when you first watch Zodiac, there's probably no way that you can immediately process all the bits of information that we're giving you, especially in the procedural quality of it. But he's like the biggest thing that we learned, you know, in the homage to all the president's men is we trust the process with these people who are capable, who are good at their job. Um, and we just follow them. And, and I think that that's what all the president's men does so beautifully is like, um, is, You've got these two guys and they're battling against the protections and the withholding of a whole bunch of people for bureaucratic elements. And what the flip with Zodiac is, you've got all these great people who are very good and none of the bureaucratic things connect. There's a lack of connection. And so Spot on. And so that that's what I love watching because it's that same energy of like these people are good and they're relentless and they'll keep pursuing it and keep pursuing it. And there are sometimes these insurmountable things in front of them the payoff for presidents is that they do get those breakthroughs um, and the lack of payoff for Zodiac maybe is the continual itch that you keep scratching when you rewatch all the president's men is that like, you're like, at least with presidents at the end, you get a beautiful teletype that the world kept going and they kept, they had to keep working. And Zodiac's like, no, I'm not going to give you the ease of just showing you that I'm going to make you feel what it's like to keep working <laughs> all the way yeah. to the end. And then at the end, maybe you don't get the story, you know, there's, um, that's you know, it's interesting. I, I never really, I never really put so fine a point on it now until you said that. But like, when you think about how all the president's men ends, it ends in this moment of uncertainty, and then the teletype comes up that tells you what, and that tells you there's closure. Yes. Or if not closure, at least like you know, all the fruits of your labor were not in vain. Yes. And with this, it ends in a moment of like we, we caught the guy. We're pretty sure we caught the guy <laughs> who did it, and then the equivalent of a teletype comes up and says, yeah, he died and we're never really sure. And <laughs> they, you know, the people who went crazy kind of went crazy and Paul Avery died and um, yeah. And scene. Okay. Well, like, <laughs> and it's like, it's like, very instead, similar of a, endings and yet, it's, instead of a teletype, it's like, how sure are you? 90%. Oh, cool. That's comforting. And then it's like, <laughs> see ya. We never caught him. And you're like, nope. God damn he it. Died of, a, died of a heart attack before we could commit. And, you know, they never got any more phone calls, but that doesn't mean anything. And okay. So um, who made this film? Like, let's roll credits. <laughs> <laughs> there, 
I mean, there are scenes like this that, I mean, God, the late, he could do an entire podcast just on the late great Harris Savides, but uh, like mm. that where he's shooting some of those newsroom scenes where you almost feel like he plucked them out of presidents. Yes. There's that great thing where it's um, Gyllenhaal's, Jake Gyllenhaal's coming back in after something and the TV's on and it's basically empty and there's like one guy in the foreground and you immediately think, I immediately thought of like the scene that you and I talked about for the president's podcast where yeah. it's, it's the slow kind of zoom in into Redford as he's like working the phones, doing the shoe leather thing and kind of having it come. And then suddenly there's just this unexpected kind of break that he stumbles across. Uh, and there's a lot of that in there. I mean, Zodiac is really like a great movie about, you know, guys in sweaty white shirts and polyester <laughs> suits like <laughs> sitting in front of typewriters and phones, meeting in offices and like pounding the pavement. And, uh, you know, Fincher's talked about how there he wished he'd shot a scene. I don't know if he shot it, but it was definitely in the script where it was, they were, it was Hall's character and I think one other character were talking to the attorney for Arthur Lee Allen and the whole thing was going to be done by speakerphone as described by Fincher in an interview, uh, he said it would be like a Charlie's Angels thing where they're oh. just talking into it. <laughs> and he goes, we had to cut it. I, I think it was in one of the, he must've shot it. Cause I think it was in one of the screening, the early like preview screenings where it was something like between five to eight minutes of just them, of just men around the loudspeaker talking into the loudspeaker and the loudspeaker talking back to them and that's the that audience, is that the is audience was just so like, my shit i'm like move it great. along dude move it along and then there's people like you and me with that it is, it is. it's like so going yes give me give me one more scene like this the very first time i talked to fincher was for mind hunter it was when the first season of mind hunter was just getting ready to drop and i was talking to him on the phone and i kind of opened by saying like i really love your show but then again like i think i said i really love your show and fincher who has no trepidation about questioning journalists about stuff goes oh do you think it'll you think it'll do good and i went to i said i don't know if i'm the right person to ask because like i love that it's like i'm the kind of guy who would watch 10 a 10 hour cut of zodiac <laughs> to which i go so like i'm pretty much a pig and shit for this and he goes uh, a 10 hour cut of zodiac and then he just very calmly went that means you'll never be the president of paramount <laughs> and uh you know he's talked a lot too about how um how the zodiac experience kind of drove him to do stuff like mindhunter it basically drove him to do tv in yeah. a lot of ways because um the idea that people would come to a movie theater and for two and a half hours watch what he essentially describes as a character study with no amount of closure uh, a procedural in which you never get your you never find the murder and your questions are never answered um is a bit of a he called it a bit of a huge ask for yes. an audience he had admittedly so and how uh he was very bummed out and depressed by the reaction but wasn't necessarily surprised by it because he goes people come to the movies to expect something that is you know two to three hours and its own enclosed thing whereas the durational he goes i think people are much more willing to go with like durational storytelling when they're not in a theater but sitting on the edge of their bed yeah. and treating the remote control like a paperback in which it is essentially a chapter and a chapter and a chapter yes 
Um, and then he goes, you know, Zodiac's response, the response that people got to Zodiac, the reaction that people had to Zodiac, uh, which was really, you know, no reaction whatsoever, was kind of what drove him. He goes, like, there's a direct connection between me making House of Cards and Mindhunter and how people responded to that. He's like, I really wanted that. I needed that bigger canvas. I needed the thing to be able to try and tell a story with that sort of length and not have people tune out. Easy, dirty, Harry. Finish the book. Thank you. Thank you for breakfast. Can I help you? No. Gyllenhaal's Graysmith slowly walks into the hardware store from the street. His eyes sort of softly darting around peering around corners into aisles. He walks further into the store and just behind the Ace Hardware featured items sign, kind of reminiscent of a yield or giveaway sign, just behind that triangle is Arthur Lee Allen. It's now February 1980. According to the calendar, says to Arthur Lee Allen's right. As John Carroll Lynch turns around, breaks from concentration, and smiles in a sort of cordial customer service way. All of this distracted attempts at subtlety from Graysmith peel away. He is laser focused on his target. And then a dawning recognition happens. John Carroll Lynch's Arthur Lee Allen becomes aware that this is the guy. The guy that is after him. The guy that continues his tireless pursuit. And from within the scene, 
Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street hits the radio. And I just want to quote some lyrics before the first chorus. Another year and then you'd be happy. Just one more year and then you'd be happy. But you're crying. Crying now. You could have been getting away with it for another year. But in this moment the inference is, we've got him. Here's Meg Shields on the humour in this moment. And then the real Robert Graysmith about the question that we've all been begging to ask. Did Arthur Lee Allen recognise Graysmith in that hardware store? Robert Graysmith will tell us. Oh, you mean it doesn't It doesn't end with a guy being like, I'm going to do the uh, Star is Born meme of just came to take another look at you? Like, <laughs> this entire film is just Jake Gyllenhaal being like, I don't care about justice. I just want to steer him down and then walk away. <laughs> <laughs> because isn't, isn't that the most desperate? So funny. It's, it's so funny. But isn't that the it's most like, de- hey, Sir, you've you've uh, endangered your family and ruined your marriage. Uh, why? And lost your job. Is, is, is it for justice? Job. Yeah, and lost your job. Is it for justice? He's like, no, no, no. I, I just want to look at him. <laughs> like, <That's- laughs> it's so funny. Well, don't get me wrong. I love it. I like. I, I love I, it I, too. I, I I wasn't sure because I've never seen this film. I wasn't sure if, uh, and I should have known that Fincher would would be as by the book as possible and true to life. But I, I wasn't sure if it was gonna like become revisionist a la once upon a time in hollywood at the end of me and like and then they caught him they caught the zodiac and it was closed (laughs) like like i didn't know if that would happen and i i love that fincher was like okay well and i'm sure this is based off the book or whatever draws from a moment in the book he was like just just the idea of being like okay we can't solve it what's like the next best thing that keeps the door open it's like good staring contest in a hardware store Yes. He was crazy about movies, but he knew exactly who I was when he saw. I, by the way, I got photos of him in the window. Oh my Unfortunately, God. thanks to the, my highly developed technological skills, uh, it, they're about, he's about the size of a dime. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I did get them. I definitely happened. And, uh, but yeah, I, I'm pretty obvious. I, I, I was especially obvious with uh, Rick Marshall, who uh, worked at a, a movie theater. And that's how that basement scene came about. Yes. But all of this stuff was taped and photographed. I, I, as I said, I don't make stuff up. We had to change a couple things. The legal department made us do that. Yes. Or they, somebody would request their real name not be used. But in general, it's 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 very basic, very true. <laughs> uh, this is a. I'm sorry. I am was again much too stupid to realize. So I'm watching him in the window of the store where he works, and I'm parked there in my orange VW. And he's not in the window anymore. And this car pulls up alongside me. And this guy rolls. I'm trapped. I'm between the curb and this guy. And it's Alan. And he gives me a death look. Now, I thought, huh, that's funny. And years later, I realized when I caught somebody on my balcony, a big guy uh, who was trying to get in and jumps two stories down below and runs out the garage and had my tires slashed. I thought, ah, that's, that's funny. But now I'm beginning to think, wow, I may have really been baiting the bear. Uh, that is one scary guy. So, you know, you, you, you do things when you're younger. I mean, uh, you don't think it out, but, eh, you know, maybe I was just a little, I'd have my uh, girlfriend go in and, oh, let me take a picture of you. And I'd nudge her over so he was in it. And then she'd try to get handwriting. And, you know, so what I did is I told the owner of the store, I said, you know, he's a suspect in the Zodiac case. Said, None of my suspects, none of my employees are suspects. He's very upset. And I said, well, here's my number. It was a special number, unlisted, just for him. 
And of course, he gave it to to Alan. And so from then on, on weekends, Fridays, Saturdays, I got a hang-up call or breathing. This is the only, nobody else has the number. So I always thought that was really interesting. And that was reasonably scary. But it was enough to get me to just, you know, plow through like they showed in the movie. He's Josh Rothkopf on the quandary of wanting to hear from a filmmaker, but never wanting to prescribe to their exact meaning of their film. You were saying that uh, everything that Fincher puts on screen is so clear. Yes. Every frame is so clear. And it's also almost like he doesn't have to carry the burden of making the art and interpreting the art. Yes. Like that would be too much for one person to have. He doesn't need to. He, all he has to do is be brilliant and make the films and then we can take them and they can colonize our brains and reflect off all sorts of different kind of synapses and we can make them what we want. I have that reaction with with so many of the films you've examined and also with with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Like that's a, that's a film that has such a clear vision but has grown so much in my head. And I kind of, I know what you mean. Like you don't want to read Anderson's own interpretations of it because you don't want to know if there's one that should take primacy or not because you like your own readings more and that gives you ownership it gives you entry point it makes you feel tied to the art I know that I know that feeling you're talking about though in in the sense that um you that's that's the sign of a good interviewer what you're saying I I don't want to I don't want to go to your head but it's but it really is because you, you you want him to reflect on the things that he can talk about and the clarity and what inspired him and what went into the moments. Because the interpretive part, there's a danger in asking artists about that. Like I remember seeing Heat and watching the famous scene in the diner and actually feeling like these guys are very similar. They're very close. In another world, they'd be friends, you know, like that's, yeah. they're, 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 they're mirror images in a way. And I found it very intimate. And then I picked up a sight and sound. I remember that had, it was sort of like Michael Mann on shooting that scene. And it yeah. had his hand, his handwritten notes about, I don't know if you've seen this piece or not, but it, yeah. you know, and like his script notes that he wrote in the margins and how the way he presented it, the way the article presented it, Michael Mann viewed directing that scene. Like it was almost like, like a match, like a mano a mano, and you can't, you have to push back and you can't let him have this moment and take away his power here. And it was very, it it wasn't soft like the way I had seen it in my head and interpreted it. It was much more aggro. It was much more um, adversarial. And then I then I watched the film again. I'm like, yeah, I see it. It is adversarial. But I had shifted away from the way I had thought about it at first, just simply by reading the interview. We've had the moral climax of the film. Across a full-marker table, condiments as players, Robert Graysmith tells the Zodiac story to Dave Tosky and his response, finish the book. Graysmith's own desire to look in the eyes of the man who he believed to be the Zodiac killer after the Allen played by John Carroll Lynch has happened. And yet here we are in this transient space with the one person who can answer to the date that won't end. Mr. Rougeau, thanks for coming to see me. 
He's the one I talked to on the phone. I'm George Bauer, Vallejo PD. I took over for Jack Molex. It's been 22 years. I don't know how I can help you. Well, this is just a formality. I'm going to show you a group of photographs. Now, the person that shot you may or may not be among these photographs. You don't have to pick anybody out just because I'm showing you these pictures, you understand? Uh, yes, sir, I do. <clears throat> Time. You don't recognize anyone that's home. <clears throat> He's Bill Ryan, Brianna Ziegler, and Adam Naiman on the boundless feeling in this modest coda. I think it's a. Uh... If that's, I don't care if that actually, if it actually happened that way or not. I think it's a, uh, it's brilliant. It's just this weird detail that you, you know, it, you wouldn't expect. They could have made it so much more simpler to say, you know, come down to the station really quickly or whatever. But they make mm. it this unusual, detailed, textured kind of a, a moment because it's a short scene and, and but even then, because he points to Arthur Lee Allen, and I think even. Um, that that little square, you know, passport photo kind of thing of John Carroll Lynch is actually uh, whiter, yeah. like the white is whiter than the others, to, so he stands out more. Uh, and he definitely points to him, and then he says, "So you're saying this was this was the man who shot you?" And he says he had a round face like this guy. And James will go, "Well, wait a minute, are you now saying it's number two? <laughs> so even in this moment that seems definitive. It's not definitive. No. But, they, he, but then he says, "That's the man who shot me." And then, and as her, as the hum, as Donovan's humming beginning <laughs> of "Hardy Gurdy Man" starts to to come in under the dialogue, it's it's a brilliant ending. How sure? Eighty percent. Ninety percent. And that's the but to end with, that's the man who shot me. I'm eighty percent or whatever. That's the man who shot me. As you hear that hum of Donovan, the the creepy, oh, it's so good. I, I love that scene. The the certain the the way it feels certain to an extent with the text at the end, and then that scene where he, you know, he points to Arthur Lee Allen in that lineup. But then at the same time, it's like you know he immediately he immediately points to him. But then he's like he's like yeah, it's definitely him, but. He had a round face, like the guy next to him. And there's that, just that moment of like slight, it still could not be him. And then the guy asks him like, how certain are you? Like it's at least an eight. Like I'm, but I'm pretty fucking sure I know the guy who shot me. And then the movie just fucking ends like that. That one moment of uncertainty. And then the fact that it's still only an eight doesn't, I feel like, make up for or it doesn't it doesn't um like him being so arresting and his certainty by the end of that scene that doesn't make up for his his faltering like just a couple seconds prior oh it's like (laughs) it's such a perfectly like executed scene and playing with our expectations and you know our trust I mean, Fincher talked about why the Zodiac's played on all the because his identity is unfixed and it opens up the possibility of copycats and it's stylistically very surreal. He's never quite the same person. And crucially, he's never played as the Zodiac by John Carroll Lynch. Lynch. So there's there's that. 
and Michael McGough obviously is played in the end by uh, what's his name, Jimmy Simpson, because Jimmy Simpson. he's aged. However, <laughs> in a movie that is about an in impossible lack of certainty, when you have a character being played by a different actor, looking at the face of an actor playing a real person and looking and saying, I'm pretty sure that's the guy. <laughs> it is uh, ontologically destabilizing. <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, it, it works to suggest that Michael Mugo is a different person. I mean, he's older. He's had these different experiences. Mm -hmm. And I know that none of the characters in the movie age quite that much because by the time the Graysmith plot is over, it's the early 80s. So, like, again, I'm not trying to read, like, 89th level chess into it. But I find that scene of him saying, I'm sure that I remember it. That's the guy. And you're looking and saying, you're not even the same actor. Yes. I mean, I mean, who remembers? Who knows to certainty? And this is one of those cases where I think the movie is maybe better than its intentions. Fincher gave interviews where he said, we're not trying to implicate um, John Carroll Lynch. We're not trying to implicate that character, uh, Arthur Lee Allen. But we kind of are, because the book does that, and the yes. book pursues that case, and we don't put another suspect out there. So in a way, it's a little coy, right? He's like, well, it's not about Arthur Lee Allen being guilty, but it does pursue that thinking about as far as it goes. <laughs> and yet, it won't do it. James Legros plays George Barwatt. It's only the second time we've seen him in the film, and the last time, he's a punchline. Elias Cody's as Jack Mullinex points to a sodden, frantic Graysmith and says he thinks he's going to save Zodiac. James Legros says, well, good for him. Now, Barwood is the lead investigator from Vallejo. One of the last remaining places that the case remains open. Here's something I promised some time ago. During my conversation with Robert Graysmith, he talked about the real George Barwood and how he was such a significant contributor to the filmmakers, both Brad Fisher, James Vanderbilt, David Fincher, on providing real case files to cross-reference and research to enrich this film. And during our conversation, he dropped another bombshell. We've been talking so much about the uncertainty and the lack of clarity and the lack of resolution, but I felt that I had to share this moment. It was just galvanized because it was so new. All of this stuff, you know, it's just like, what's the, as George Bauer says, what's a serial killer do? Does he, does he kill serial? You know, he had no idea. And they never ran into this before. So they made a lot of mistakes. But George told me, who I think is an absolutely fascinating character, he told me that uh, if we had a cell phone, this thing would have been over in 10 minutes. They yes. could have cut off a road, cut off this and that. But it, it just won't go away. I mean, it's... Um, I think what we came up with in the uh, Shooting Zodiac book, um, I'll tell you how that came about. I don't want to talk too long on no, it. No, keep going. But keep going, please. George's diet. George is one of the toughest. He was tough as a junk, uh, junkyard dog, they used to say. And he's a Vallejo policeman, uh, detective, and he's retired. So he's put on some weight. And uh, now I'm going over and talking to him a lot. I go and he says, I'm the only one coming over. You know, it's nice. But now Brad and Jamie want to come. So what? What he's done, he goes on a diet. He gets a hearing aid. He just fixes his glasses. He comes, he meets them at this uh, um, restaurant, and and he's 60 pounds thinner. <laughs> and like I said in the book, he, 
got spring to his step and his hair's cut close and he's tanned and uh, he's just wow. And of course, I have this habit of if somebody's wearing something, I'm going to tell you what they're wearing. If they're <laughs> eating something, I'm going to tell you what they're eating. So they have this great meeting. He says, well, come on out to the house, he says. And he says, he said what Captain Jackson said. He said, we talk cop to cop. And he told me, Brad and Jamie are good people. They're not trying to exploit. He says, not that they could. I don't know how they could. So he thinks they're good folks. So they're in. They're in. So they go to his house and um, they try to follow him. <laughs> He's a bit of a sea demon. And they, they finally find him. He's twisting back roads. And it's a lovely house. And he tells the stories and stuff. So finally, he says, I've got something for you. Well, because he got so slender and there's this tiny hole into the attic, he could squeeze through. <laughs> oh, he's got all these documents that lay through it. They said, get those out of here. We don't want those. You know, go take them. Uh, are we going to dump them? Yeah, take them with us. So he's got stuff. And he comes down and there's Brad and Jamie. And it's a quiet house and it's out in the country. And he puts down these two boxes and everything is there. Their audio tapes. So finally, uh, they sit down, they watch all this stuff, and they see that, and they're very impressed with the, the, uh, the way they interrogated him and how, how he thinks he's smart, and they know they are, and they go home. And Jamie's saying stuff like, "Well, if I'm, I'm about to have an accident, I'm I'm saving this box. You know, uh, I'm gonna. This is too important. Fisher would die if he didn't see this stuff." So they take it home. Brad goes to his house. He's going through papers. Jamie has the rest of the material. It's two in the morning. Jamie's only had ice water today. That's all he's had. <laughs> and the dog's running back and forth across the papers and stuff. And so he comes across a drawing. And as I said, this is a killer who draws. He uses ink. He can retouch. He's used paint. He can draw skeletons. You name it. He's, he's drill. This guy has, there's a map. It's a map of Lake Berryessa. And Jamie's looking at it. He's like, well, what could this be, though? He looks at the top. Maybe it's something that... Uh, uh, Armstrong, Bill Armstrong, the uh, Toski's partner, maybe he drew it. No, there's his name, Arthur Lee Allen. He starts uh, looking at, what could this be? I, I don't understand. It's a, it's a it's Lake, Lake Berryessa. He's drawn that. So finally, they go to meet George. And George, what do, what do you think of this? And he goes, well, what the hell did you get that? <laughs> and he said, uh, we got it from the stuff you gave us. I've never seen this. So he's going through this. And he says, well, okay, there's an S-E here. Uh, Oh, there's an SF, I'm sorry, Spanish flat. That's what that is, because here's the lake. You go up a little further, and there's another one that he recognizes. And he gets all the way to the top, and there are three little triangles. And that's where the stabbings took place. He said, this was where I'm, uh, uh, Narlo and I are going to take you tomorrow. And he's marked it, and he signed it. And to <laughs> me, this is a guy, this is our suspect. He, all, he knew the second victim. He used to go out and drink on Lake Herman Road. He's at the lake when there are only 10 people, one of them is Zodiac, uh, three, three witnesses, the two victims, two patrolmen, and, you know, I mean, that's it. That's all they had. I never really understood that until I went out of the 20th time to the lake and that how few people were there. And he comes back and he goes, I was at the lake, and you're gonna, the police are going to come, and they're going to ask about me. But I left before the stabbings. Now, this is 5, 6 o'clock. <laughs> and they have, there's no knowledge of this. How does he know? How does he know it's a stabbing? Mr. Michaud, thanks for coming to see me. 
He's the one I talked to on the phone. I'm George Bauer, Vallejo PD. I took over for Jack Molex. It's been 22 years. I don't know how I can help you. Well, this is just a formality. I'm going to show you a group of photographs. Now, the person that shot you may or may not be among these photographs. You don't have to pick anybody out just because I'm showing you these pictures, you understand? Uh, yes, sir, I do. <clears throat> Time. You don't recognize anyone that's okay. <clears throat> it's him. How sure are you? You can be sure. You had a round face like this guy. Wait, am I to understand that you're now identifying the second photograph? No, I'm just interested. You had a round face like that. Is this man? All right. Now, on a scale of one to ten, ten being positive, how sure are you? <clears throat> At least an eight. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. Thrown like a star in my vast if I opened my eyes to take a peek to find that I was by the sea gazing with trying The final word on the scene. I give it to Mr. Adam name. Is it scarier at the end of the movie when he faces him in the hardware store? Well, then that's not him. Because if that's not him, who the fuck else is out there? You know? That question of what and who is out there is what I think. It's like thinking about the bottom of the ocean. I know that that sounds a little bit strange, but that idea of like what is actually out there. There's so much out there that we don't see, that we don't know. And the people who we see and experience are so unknowable. What have they done? Yeah. Who are they? What are people capable of? It's scary stuff. Yes. It's in the movie. They wouldn't exist without the way the movie's made. But it's beyond the movie, too. That concludes the 24th and final episode of Zodiac Chronicle. Capricorn Part 2. Thank you so much for subscribing to One Heat Minute Productions. And please continue to subscribe to everything we do here at One Heat Minute Productions. If you can't get enough, there are still many Zodiac sessions that will continue to be dropped exclusively on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon, which is linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas the Duff. Thank you so much for our I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until the next series. Good bye.
you know, and it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible because like if you if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of the place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far. But I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way. And we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air. Yes. Because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, at, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along, and it is a, an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That, that's the movie that I wanted to see, 10 of those, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything, and God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things, again, I. I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're going to pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this Blake that's right our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander the series is called Podcaster and Commander
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.